0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message.
1: Today's passage is John 2 1 through 11. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him.
2: This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Mandy Seymour. I'm the children's minister here at Rez. Um, I just want to welcome you to our fourth Sunday family service. You can all have a seat. So just a reminder, we do have all of our generations with us today. So we, um, it's a joy to serve this way and to worship this way together. Um, so I have a, a game that I'd like to play. This is interactive. Some of my kiddos from ResKids have already heard some of these. So don't give it away. But you do get to participate, okay? So this game is called I Believe. So my question, or I will ask you some questions. And then your job is to raise your hand. You can call out to me however you want to do it, whether you believe or you don't believe what I'm telling you, okay? So, let's get started. All right, here's the first fact, maybe. There are over 7,000 variations of apples. Do you believe this? Raise your hand. Yes? We have have a fair amount. Who doesn't believe that? All right, almost equal, almost. Okay, what about this? Cotton candy was invented by a dentist. (laughs) You believe that? Who believes that? I see a lot of kids. I see a lot of kids on that one. All right. All right. Let's see. It is against the law to build a sandcastle in parts of Italy. Who believes that? Yeah. Okay. Fair amount. Who doesn't believe that? Anybody? No. (laughs) Bradley's pretty adamant about that one. All right. Let's see. Um. Some lily pads can support the weight of a small child. Who believes that? Lily pads. All right, who doesn't believe that? Less, less not believe, um, unbelievers on that one. All right, here's an interesting one. Flushing the toilet after 10 p.m. in Switzerland is illegal. Who believes that? Illegal. Yeah, oh, a lot of you. Okay, who doesn't believe that one? I see a lot of non-voters here. (laughs) All right, let's go. We got a couple more. There are more Lego minifigures in existence than actual people on earth. Who believes that? (laughs) Uh (laughs) that. (laughs) (laughs) Mary says in Thomas's room. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't believe that one? There's a handful. Okay. All right. Let's see. Okay, last one. You will um, create in your lifetime enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. Who believes that? There's a lot of believers on that one. <laughs> Who doesn't believe that one? Okay, less unbelievers. on. So here's the, here's the truth. All of those are true. Every last one of them. Every last one, according to the internet. <laughs> So what? So sometimes we hear things that are really hard to believe, right? Some of those were easy to believe. Some were kind of hard to believe, but they're true. Some things in our lives, some events in our lives, or maybe the lives of our friends, our family, those that we love, they're hard to believe, right? Well, Natalie's read our text for today, so you know what our Bible story is. I would venture to say most of us have heard it, and even in this room, most of us believe it right? But what Jesus did is amazing. Do we really understand? Do we really give credit to the magnitude of Jesus's miracles? Do we really, really understand and believe what he did? His his miracles are purposeful. There's more to them than just a show. So, Today's story is gonna help us learn how Jesus' miracles help us believe.
0: You know, I wonder if in addition to it being hard to believe some of the miracles recorded for us in Scripture, I wonder how hard it is for us to believe that this Jesus is as gracious, as generous, as merciful as lavish with his love as we sing about. I wonder if that's hard for some of you to believe that he really is that kind of God. But he is. And I think this miracle tells us something about that. If you uh, hopefully have been reading the sermon text this week as it was provided for you, and again today at one o'clock, you're gonna get another email. Later in the day, it will be posted on social media and the website. We have a few hard copies for the non-internet people, Um, but you will get next week's sermon text, extended reading around the sermon text, uh, as well as a key verse. There'll be a new lock screen wallpaper with the updated key verse, so make sure you take advantage of that. Uh, All of that will be coming out this afternoon for next week, but hopefully you engaged with that this week. And if you did, if you read... The larger body of text around the sermon text, you might have noticed some things at the end of chapter 1 that I think are important. There's two things happening at the end of chapter 1 that I think we need to take note of. Number one, John the Baptist is beginning to point away from himself to Jesus. Let's flip over a page. John 1 verse 29. John 1 verse 29. Says this, the next day he, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. To Israel. So John's starting to point away from himself. And you might think, well, why does that matter? John had a huge, huge ministry that gets very little ink in scripture. People were coming from everywhere to see this guy who had this message that if I were to put it in my own words, I don't think I'm being untrue to the biblical text when I say it this way. His announcement was, God's coming. God's coming. Yahweh is going to show up on the planet in a fresh way, and you need to repent and be baptized. And this was John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance, more like a ceremonial washing or cleansing, not like the baptism we do today, more like a ceremonial washing with the forgiveness of sin in view. I don't think John would have taught, I don't think John taught at all, that his baptism accomplished forgiveness. Why do you say that, Bradley? Because when he sees Jesus walking by, notice what he says. Behold the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away. That's, wow. Not just is washing away sins, although that's, that's a right way to think about, takes away the sins of the world. What would first century Jews have thought of when they heard that? I think that's an important question. And to be honest, I don't know for sure, but I do think there's a couple of things that we could conclude. Israel, good Old Testament savvy Jews would know their history and they would know our nation has a pattern. And that pattern is God is gracious to us, but then we sin, we screw it up. And when Israel screws it up, when they sin, God judges them, and more often than not, that leads to Israel being in exile under God's judgment, facing hardship. You with me so far? Right? We know that. If you've read a little bit of the Old Testament, you've seen that. But then the pattern would continue. God would send a leader, a prophet, a king, a A guy like Samson or Samuel or David or Elijah, he would send a prophet king leader who would call the nation to repentance. And in many cases, the nation did repent and that those leaders would in some way or another serve as military leaders to help Israel overcome her enemies, So what did the first century Jews have in mind when John the Baptist, this significant figure, starts pointing to Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think they would have had in mind, in some way or another, God's going to show up through this guy. God's showing up through this guy. And in some way or another, sin is going to be dealt with like it was in the past. And in some way or another, this Jesus is going to be a warrior king who's going to deliver us from Rome. I think that's what's in their mind. So that's the first thing that's happening at the end of chapter 1. John is pointing to Jesus. Here's the second thing. People are starting to follow him. Let's, let's keep reading verse 43 of chapter 1. I'm just going to pick up a couple of these that are beginning to follow 43 of chapter 1, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip believes something about this Jesus. Nathaniel said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" It's like, can anything good come out of Lyman? I said, Just know, <laughs> I knew Eric was sitting right there. That's why I said that. <laughs> can anything good come out of? I mean, Nazareth. Uh, Philip said to him, "Come and see." So, so Nathaniel's skeptical. Philip believes something about Jesus, but Nathaniel's skeptical. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How amazing is that? If you're Nathanael, are you not just like jaw dropped to the floor? So now Nathanael has some confidence that's just built up in this Jesus because Jesus gives him a sign. Apparently, Nathanael was under a fig tree somewhere, and Jesus saw that. Jesus told him about it. Now Nathanael believes somewhat. He believes something. But look what Jesus says to him next. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, pay attention here, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As you read this this week, how many of you read that and went, what in the world does that mean? Just raise your hand, be honest, it's okay, all right? There's a story in Genesis chapter 28. I think Nathanael would have known this. Otherwise, I don't think Jesus would have said it to him. There's a story where Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham, he has a dream. And in this dream, the Lord visits Jacob and he reiterates all the promises that he made to his grandfather, Abraham. And in this dream, Jacob sees a vision. And in this vision, there's a ladder on the earth, that reaches all the way into heaven. And on that ladder, Jacob sees angels ascending and descending. When he sees this, it leads Jacob to say this, Genesis chapter 28, verse 17. Let's look at this on the screen. And he was afraid when he saw the vision and he heard what God was saying, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and, look at this, this is the gate of heaven. What does Jesus say to Nathanael? He says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man, on me. What is Jesus saying to Nathanael? Nathanael, I'm the gate of heaven. You see that? He's telling Nathanael, You believe because I told you I saw you under that fig tree. But you're going to see even greater things than these, Nathaniel, because you remember Jacob, you remember that ladder, I'm the ladder. Heaven is breaking in through me. And if you're Nathaniel, if you're Philip, if you're Simon, if you're Andrew, who just begun to follow this guy, Jesus, you have to be thinking to yourself, don't you? What's he going to do if he is who we think he is? And I I want to pose this question to you. If you're on the fence about this Jesus, if there's something in you that's saying, you know what, I think he might be the son of God, but I'm just not sure about all this spiritual stuff and this religious stuff and the Bible, I'm just not, but I think there might be something to this Jesus, you need to ask the question, if he is who he says he is, how's he gonna put his greatness on display? And if I'm in Nathaniel's shoes or Philip's shoes or Simon's shoes or Andrew's shoes, I'm thinking to myself, All right, somehow he's going to deal with sin, but at some point, he must be going to flex his military muscles. At some point, we're going to get a sword demonstration. At some point, he's going to sit us down and tell us his strategy to overthrow Rome, because that is who we believe the king of Israel to to be. That is who we believe the Messiah to be. So What's he going to do? How's he going to put his greatness on display? Now we come to a wedding. Of all places, a wedding. It seems like a waste of Jesus' time, doesn't it? If he's who we think he is, he needs to get busy doing the things that matter. But no, he's at a wedding. He gets invited. He comes with his disciples and his mother's there. Mary comes to him at this wedding. weddings were a huge deal weddings went on for days and jewish culture feasting is ingrained all right if you're doing the rhythm of feasting and fasting with us you're probably really looking forward to today right ethan's already had 7 cups of coffee he gave up coffee this i know you're not supposed to talk about what you're fasting but he's been a little difficult to deal with this week Amen. (laughs) But feasting is such a huge part of Jewish culture. Several times a year, if you are a Jew or a convert to Judaism, you make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for prescribed feasts. And at these feasts, wine is a huge deal. It's a massive deal. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him, and says at this wedding that's supposed to go on for days and it's supposed to be a feast, there's supposed to be more than enough of everything, including the wine, comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. That's a huge deal. That's a big deal. I can't overstate that enough. It's a big deal. And Mary and Jesus have this odd, awkward uncomfortable interchange, don't they? Did you read that and kind of go, oh, what? Let's read it again. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Mary doesn't like it when I quote this verse to her, when she brings up that the trash needs to be taken out. or I'm just quoting scripture, Mary. I mean, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's startling. But let's be careful. Let's be careful not to read tone into this. Right? Let's let's look at this from a couple of different angles. Number one, let's, let's, let's consider what Mary does not do. Mary does not, as my parents might would have done, your parents might would have done. She does not, when the wine runs out, she does not stand up in front of everybody at the feast and say, hey, my son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and an angel came to me and said he would be the son of the most high God. I'm sure he can fix this. Jesus, would you? She doesn't do that. Here's the second thing Mary does not do. She comes to him and brings the problem, and I I have to conclude that she at least has a sense he can do something about it. What she thinks he can do, I don't know. This is the first of his signs, so we're very early in the ministry. I don't think Jesus was doing magic tricks as a little boy. But whatever she thinks he can do, she comes to him, and she doesn't tell him what to do. She just brings him the problem And then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She's not being a bossy mom, and she's not being a proud mom. You with me? Let's talk about what Jesus does not do. He's not rude to her. I know when in our culture, when we hear, woman, what does this have to do with me? That sounds degrading. But this is the first century Palestinian equivalent of Jesus being a good Southerner and saying, Ma'am, it is distant, but it's cordial. He is being kind, but he's also being appropriate. He's saying, Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Woman or ma'am is cordial, but somewhat distancing address. He also is making it clear to her, I think, that she is not setting the terms here. It is not for her to determine the timing of his mission. She is not being bossy. She's not trying to push him out of the nest. He's not being rude to her, but they are having a very respectful conversation and interchange that the end result of it is this Jesus is made aware of the problem she tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do, which could have been, I'm not doing anything. And he responds to her very politely, but also with a little bit of distance to say, this is not up to you, ma'am. My hour has not yet come. Does that make sense? So this is respectful. It's not abrupt, as we might tend to think it would be. Question then becomes, if Jesus says it's not his hour, if his time has not yet come, that sounds like he's not going to do a miracle. If, if, he's not, if his intention is not to do a miracle, why does he go ahead and do it? Is he being wishy-washy? Is he unsure about the timing of his ministry? I don't think so. I don't think that Mary is waking him up and, and he's going, Oh, yeah, it is time, Mary. It's not for you to determine, but thank you. What is he saying? My hour has not yet come. I think he's saying this, ma'am, it's not time for me to go public. It's not time for me to go public. I think he's setting the terms by which he is going to do this miracle. His intention is to do it. But his intention is not to do it in such a way that, as my friend Brian Onkin likes to say, He flashes his God card in front of everybody. So if his intention is to do it and not do it in a public fashion, not flash his God card, why does he do this miracle? Okay, you know the story. John tells us there are six stone water jars there for ceremonial purification. That means these jars were not there for drinking. They were there for washing your hands and washing your feet according to the Jewish rites of purification. This was a place to wash yourself before you feasted. So Jesus tells the servants, fill these stone jars up to the brim. Each of them hold how much? 20 to 30 gallons. Let's go with 30, right? Because why less when you can have more? 30 gallons each, how much is that? 100, To say it out loud, 180, okay? Got some mathematicians in here. Fill these stone jars up, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast or the master of ceremonies, if you will. And then here's what happens, verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn out the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is an incredible miracle. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what the master of ceremonies is saying. The typical pattern is you bring out the expensive stuff at the beginning. And then when everybody's senses are a little bit dull, you bring out the cheap stuff. That's what the master of ceremonies is saying. That was the typical pattern. But Jesus turns 180 gallons of water, not into just good wine, but the best wine. How extravagant is that? How generous is that? How over the top is that? Do you see Jesus in this way? That he is this generous, that at a wedding, he would make 180 gallons, not of cheap wine, but of the best wine. Now, wine may not mean anything to you. And I understand that. It doesn't, it's, it's not something that everyone enjoys or treasures. So when I was talking with my kids about that this week, I said to them, I said, imagine that you get invited to a birthday party. How many of you kids have been to birthday parties before? All right. So imagine you get invited to a birthday party and somebody invited, somebody forgot to bring the cake. And so imagine Jesus is there and he sees that in this birthday party, this is a little weird, but there's 180 very large cake plates that are empty. And Jesus tells everyone to fill up these large cake plates, 180 of them with broccoli. And at this point, my kids are rolling their eyes and like, what, what are you talking about? I said, just imagine. He said, fill all these cake plates up with broccoli. And then somehow, this, these 180 platefuls of broccoli become the best cake you have ever put in your mouth. And I looked at my kids and I said, what would you think of this Jesus if you were at a party and he did that? And Ella spoke up and said, I would think he's amazing. (laughs) And I said, that's it. That's the point. He's amazing. He is this amazing. I think... Too many people have this picture of Jesus like he's the stoic standoff looking at you out of the corner of your eye telling you, you better keep your nose clean or I'm going to zap you. That we're always a breath away from him as his people, a breath away from him just being angry and done with us that his grace and his mercy is somehow on a really short leash, and he's very stingily, that's a word, doling it out. Is that what this tells us? This is a generous, joyful Jesus who loves to celebrate with his people. Now, if he didn't do this to put on a public display, why did he do it? John gives us a critical detail. Nobody but the servants, and probably Mary, though John doesn't say that. Nobody but the servants knew where the water wine came from. Who does the master of ceremonies give the credit to? The bridegroom, which the bridegroom's over there going, what, Uh, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I did. And what's Jesus doing? not taking the credit. So why did he do it? What was his purpose? My hour's not yet come, but I'm still gonna do something about this. Jesus doesn't do anything haphazardly. He doesn't do anything on the fly. This is purposeful. The Father planned this. Jesus obeyed, and he did something to tell us something about himself and about God the Father. Look at verse 11 again. I think it tells us the answer. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Can we say that together? He manifested his glory. Don't over-spiritualize that. I, I was talking with my kids about this, and I said, we don't use the word manifested. I said, what does it mean? And one of them, at some point, after trying to think about it a little bit, they got to the right answer. It means to see. Something becomes seen. So what did he do? He made visible his glory, which is just a fancy way of talking about his greatness, his amazingness, his awesomeness. He put it on display. Why? Look at the last sentence of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. Who did he do this for? He did it for his disciples. Wait a minute, I thought they already believed, Bradley. We talked about this last week, didn't we? Belief in Jesus includes two things. It includes knowledge. You know something about him. You're learning about him. It also includes trust and confidence. They believed him to be the Messiah. They believed him to be the Christ. One of them said he's the king of Israel. One of them said he's the one that Moses wrote about. Did they understand fully who Jesus was? Did they understand fully what he was there to do? But did they learn something about him this day? They believed something about him, but then their knowledge grew and their trust and confidence grew as they realized this Jesus is this awesome. We might've thought he was gonna put his greatness on display by flexing his military muscles, but instead at a wedding he made 180 gallons of the best wine. And if you struggle to appreciate wine, think of really good birthday cake. He made the best. I don't think I have to convince anyone just how bad our sin is. Do I? I mean, even if you're not a church or Bible person, you only need to look at the world around us and see just how devastating sin is to the human existence. Everybody agree with that? That, That's pretty easy. Here's Here's a step that's a little harder. Is that if you have any sense whatsoever that God is holy, then you realize how personally devastating our sin is. If he is this holy, if he is perfect, if he is righteous, then our sin is a huge, huge problem. Actually, and I know this jostles the soul a little bit, the right way to think about it is, if God is holy and we're not, He is a huge, huge problem for us. We do not, listen, I don't don't know if you've heard this or thought this or been taught this or you've concluded this on your own in some form or another. We do not earn favor with God. That is impossible. It's more impossible than for you to leapfrog over the Grand Canyon than to earn righteousness with this God who is this holy. The only way is that our sin be taken away by the Lamb of God. And if that's the only way, how, just keep in mind, what were those six stone jars for? I don't want to turn that into an allegory. But if he took six stone jars made for purification and turn them into the best wine, I don't know about you, but that says something to me about the lavish nature of God's grace. That says something to me about the generous nature of God's mercy towards his people. How much does God, how much does Jesus love his church? 180 gallons worth of wine, much, I think. And then some. He loves us this much. His grace is that amazing. His generosity and mercy. What does the Bible say? His mercy is brand new every morning. It's over the top. It's over the top. And today, when you feast, think about that. When you not... Cease the spiritual part and then indulge in your guilty pleasures, whatever they may be. Don't think of it that way. Think of it as we've been preparing all week to feast today. We've been preparing all week to celebrate the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God for his people. And so when you feast, it should be as over the top as you can make it and enjoy, and with a worshipful attitude, this Jesus and his lavish, extravagant, over-the-top love and grace for us. So we're going to kick off our feast day by coming to the Lord's table. That's what we're going to do today. So Jonathan's going to come, Stephen's coming, and I want you to go ahead and grab the elements and begin to pass those down. Let me pray. And then Jonathan's going to come and lead us in communion. Lord, we thank you for this miracle, a miracle that teaches us something about you. You are this kind of savior. You are this kind of God. You are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and you invite us into a rich, deep fellowship with you that is lavish and extravagant in mercy and love and in grace. And so I pray now as we come to your table that we would be mindful of this and let this spill over into our feasting and celebration today that we celebrate you are an extravagant, extravagant Savior who loves your church so much. We celebrate that today in your name, amen, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.